Welcome to the Superhero of Love podcast. I am Bridget Fonger. I wrote a book called Superhero of Love, Heal Your Broken Heart and Then Go Save the World. That book is going to be out in January 2019, but I didn't want to wait until that time to start talking to superheroes of love. And guess what? Here's the news. You are a superhero of love. And through talking to other superheroes like yourself, tapping into that little superhero inside of you, I'm hoping that you and I and all of us start feeling more and more like superheroes of love, meaning that we love and are loved more than ever before. So welcome. Let's get this party started. Welcome, superheroes. We are already having a party here with Scott Stabile. Welcome, Scott. Hello, hello. Superheroes, you are going to be so happy to hear from this wonderful, wonderful, gentle man whose heart is so full of love. His new book is called Big Love, The Power of Living with a Wide Open Heart. And I'm going to tell you a story, which is that I, when I heard about his book and I saw that subtitle, The Power of Living with a Wide Open Heart, I was just like, oh my God, my heart leapt. And I immediately searched you online and I immediately emailed you. And now I'm going to tell you, listeners, he didn't get this email or somehow the ethers plucked it out of the, (laughs) something in the ethers plucked it out of his consciousness so that he was never allowed to see it until now. I mean, you never saw it, but I just was so moved by this book's title. And then I was so happy to read it. And I have to say, I read it in, I started it, but I knew I only had like 10 minutes to read. So I started and just read really quickly. It's such a fast read, read like 30 pages. And I was like, oh my God, I want to read the rest. And then, but I didn't have time to. And then the next time I sat down to read it, I read the rest of it because it's, it's such a great, lovely, easy read. So I'm so excited that you're here because I've been wanting you to be here for a long time. So welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Scott is a true superhero of love. One of the things that you say toward the top of your book is that somebody was asking you what you wanted to do with your life. And you were really young when they asked you this, were you not? No, I was around 30. Oh, you were so not. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Not that young. (laughs) (laughs) Now you view 30. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, me being 83. Oh, you young tot. But anyway, his answer was, I want to spread as much love as possible. That was your true answer. Yeah, I meant it. I mean, I had no clue how I was going to do that or what that was going to look like. But when I tuned in and it's like, what do you want to do? That's what I wanted to do for sure. I want to dive in into something kind of deep, which is one of the threads woven throughout your book is shame and how you deal with shame and all the sources of shame in your life, which by the end of your book, and we were just talking about Jen Pasloff, who I didn't know that knew you and you know her and everything. And we, she has a way and you have a way you both share this really lovely thing of, of dealing with shame in a way that just normalizes it, or I shouldn't say normalize. Yes. Normalizes shame and also makes it okay to just kind of drop that and realize that we're all human. (laughs) We all, we all have it. So I just want to say kudos to you for that. First. Thank you. Yeah. I, I mean, I, Jen is for me, one of the best people on the planet at doing that. Like we're all dealing with it. And, and it's for me, the only way I found to move through my shame is to announce it, to vocalize it, you know? And then when we do that, we create opportunities for others to share their shame as well. And suddenly it doesn't feel so heavy and so isolating. And it's not such a secret, which is where shame thrives. 
you know, so thank you for acknowledging that. Yeah, I love this line that you said about shame. A tricky bastard, that shame. <laughs> <laughs> I love those five words. It's such a great yeah. truth. And then, and then you said, I believe in truth. Shame, however, lives in lies, which is... Yeah. So tell, tell us about that. Well, for me, you know, shame, a lot of people will ask what's the difference between guilt and shame. And in my perspective, if I'm feeling guilt, I don't think guilt is the most positive emotion either. But if I'm feeling guilty about something, it's usually because I was a jerk. You know, I did something that that was like not okay. Um, but shame isn't referring to a specific action. The message that shame gives us is that we are inherently flawed. It doesn't matter what we do, that we are flawed human beings. And that's a, an incredibly awful and insidious voice to be playing through your head that you are flawed. You are not okay. You are not worthy. You are not enough. And of course, it's a lie. Because any of that information is coming from our minds, it's coming from our ego, it's coming some, from some distorted belief that who we are as a human being is not enough and is not worthy of love, you know. And I know that because that message is not coming, it's not coming from my heart space, it's not coming from the energy of love, I know that message is a lie. Because I believe that any messages that speak to self-abuse, that try to suggest I'm in some way not worthy as I am, not a beautiful human being as I am, that that's not true right? And that's, that's the messaging of shame. Now, I can't pretend to be, I'm, I'm certainly not someone who's like beyond all of my shame. But what I found that is by vocalizing it, or in Big Love, I write a lot, I highlight all these different pieces of shame in my life. Because I know that by doing so, the shame doesn't own me in the way that it does if I allow it to stay a secret. And I know that by doing so, what I'm eliciting in other people is a me too moment. And then that's what I get. So many people are like, thank you for sharing this because I feel the same way. You are not alone and me too. And, and, and that's an incredibly powerful connection to make with other people, you know, because it's easy when shame wants you to feel like you're alone, even though you, I'm gay. And that one of my, you know, my biggest shame in my life has been around my sexuality. And I knew I wasn't the only gay person on the planet. I mean, that wasn't, I wasn't mistaken there, you know, but your shame still wants you to believe that like something about you is more messed up than everyone else. You know, you are screwed up and gayer in a way that is not okay or whatever it, you know, whatever it is. And, and disconnected, disconnected too, right? Like that. Absolutely. They, I love that you said um, that you weren't the only one on the planet, but it does. Those thoughts make you feel like, oh, I'm completely alone and yeah. I'm the dirtiest, worst of yes. all. Nobody yes. else is this dirty and this bad. Yes, absolutely. And one of the great gifts of the world we live in now with, with social media and with the internet is that even if you're not ready to announce your shame to the world, you can certainly, there's so many resources at our hands. You can type in what you feel is your shame and you're the only one and you're going to find thousands of other people who are writing about it and creating meetups about it. And you'll see that you're not alone. That's so true. That's so true about social media. Like that's one of the gifts. Absolutely. There are a lot of downsides, but that's one of the beautiful, beautiful gifts of it is that, that, affirmation like you're not alone in whatever you're going through there are many of us out there going through something similar yeah i love i love that um jen is one of those people that does that on social media too like this is my kitchen 
this is my, yeah. I'm eating my toddler's food, you know, like, <laughs> like, the, but, and I, th- I feel like she started a trend. I mean, it definitely, she was one of the first at the helm of that, of saying, this is my dirty laundry. Yes. I also have this going on. Yes. I just got a book deal. And this is, this is also my reality. Like both things can live in the same Absolutely. She's of the best at it, I think, of really showing the full picture and the rawness and the realness of whatever's going on in her life. And it's it's incredibly powerful. I'm such a, I love her. I love her as a friend and I, I admire her as a human and she's doing such great work. Yeah. Oh, she's such an inspiration. It's just, I'm in awe of her. And the um, book's coming out next month. I know. I the know. same day as Elizabeth Gilbert's, the magical June floor. I know. That's an exciting day. <laughs> the for entire me. universe is shivering <laughs> at the thought of June 4th. The excitement yeah. is building. So let's talk now about, I love the chapter. Um, I love the title of this chapter too, Dig. And mm. digging into that shame and digging into... Um, what brought you to these these moments of looking at the dark places in your heart? I, one of the lines that I wanted to read, what's so much different now that I'm older is that I allow the grief to enter and stay as long as it needs, even when it's darkening my mind and ripping at my heart. And you've had a lot of things happen in your life where darkness could take over but you've fought that. So talk about the ways that you help us move through that. Well, I mean, Dig, the chapter is, it it focuses on losing my parents when I was 14. They were shot to death in Detroit. So uh, the chapter, a lot of it is about how for many years, I was so young. So I mean, for many years, all I did was bury that experience. I didn't face it. I didn't look at it. And I'm really great. I didn't do this consciously either. I was only 14. I didn't I didn't have the the consciousness within me to know this is what you need to do right now to survive this moment. But I'm so grateful that something in me knew, let's put this away for later, you know, just bury it and move on with your life. And I feel really lucky to have moved on in a way where I was a good student and had lots of friends and once a year had a really good cry about losing my parents and then got on with my business. And it wasn't until my early 20s that I started to understand that it was time to face the pain of this loss in a different way. It was time to grieve differently. And basically all that meant for me was that it was time to rage and it was time to mourn and it was time to cry. And it was time to allow all those emotions that I had buried for years. It was time to let them live, you know, and because what I, what I'd learned, what I was starting to learn in my early twenties, because it was at that time that I was also starting to read for the first time, kind of new age metaphysical books and books. It was, it was that time that I was starting to recognize that love is the energy I wanted to be my guiding force in life. It was love was going to be my greatest healer. And what I knew though, was that by not allowing for the fullness of my experience in life, keeping the loss of my parents, I made it a big secret, keeping it as a secret, not discussing it, not, not writing about it, not being open to the full experience of it. I knew that I was limiting the depth of connection I could have with other people. They were really only getting to experience a piece of me, right? And I was a very happy-go-lucky kind of smiley Pollyanna type guy, but with a mountain of pain underneath that Pollyanna smile. So what I've come to discover is that like we spend so much time 
running from what we're feeling and trying to numb and escape our emotions, the uncomfortable ones. We're so conditioned to believe that like, we have to be happy all the time and anything uncomfortable is something that we need to dismiss. And I came to discover that it's only when I allow myself to really sit in the experience of what I'm feeling, when I allow myself to be sad when I'm sad or to be angry when I'm angry or to be whatever it is I feel, that that's the only time the emotions have a chance of really moving through me. Because if we're numbing and escaping through booze and drugs and shopping and the phone and whatever else we're doing, um, and we all do it to some degree in some way, whenever we're doing that, we're giving all of our energy over to the thing that we're trying to numb and we're trying to escape from instead of just sitting in it and, and recognizing I can feel sad now for as long as I need to feel sad and that's okay. And that there are gifts in the sadness. There are gifts in the pain if we're willing to look at them. I really love what you said that it was okay in a way that you pushed it down for so long because it had you survived. And I just realized that sometimes I judge you know, I, I love how you, throughout your book, you, you admit judging people for, you know, you it, admit judging the overweight person in the middle seat next to you on the airplane and, you know, these, and I have, I'm, admi I'm admitting to judging how, how people handle pain sometimes, you know, like I, I feel like, oh, I'm going to get them to actually talk about the pain. Oh, and then they are the Pollyanna and I judge the Pollyanna, right? And you just taught me a lesson just then. It's like, sometimes that's the perfect way to grieve right then, you know, yeah. like you Absolutely. survived, you know? And so thank you for Absolutely. that lesson. I don't, I don't think as a 14 year old, I could have handled the weight of the anger and the grief that I felt. You know, I think it, it, it may have sent me on a completely different path. And I've learned, I, I, I thank you for bringing that up because I've really learned that to, to judge anyone else's journey is just a mistake. We have no idea mm. what they're going through. We have no idea how the choices they're making right now will serve them down the line or not and what it, where it will lead them or not. We just don't know. And how is that also like any less divine or any less exactly. perfect exactly. or any less God-centered or any less whatever, you know, whatever your, your thing is. Like, you know, it could very well be, you know, like I, I have a relationship with angels, right? I believe in angels and feel their presence and stuff. And it's like, it could very well be the angel shielding the person from, this isn't the perfect moment for that. So we're shielding you from having the experience of feeling Absolutely. that. So. Thank you for that. I was in a little bit of a shame spiral there for the last few minutes, but I think I'm out of it. But you know, feeling shame for judging people is just... We all judge. We are, we're all judgers. We're, we're all judgers. The thing that, I mean, all of us. I think that at least when we can bring awareness to our judgments, I feel like the more inclined I am to bring awareness to my judgments, the more readily I'm able to see that my judgments have very little to do with the people I'm judging and everything to do about where I am in my life. Yeah. Because when I'm feeling centered in love and when I'm feeling worthy, I'm so much less inclined to judge anyone for anything. You know, it's like when we're centered in love of who we are, it's what we have to offer others in return. Love breeds love too. Right. Absolutely. Like I'm making my first batch of kombucha right now. And, oh you know, how's it going? <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, like I just, <laughs> I just, I just put it in its dark, warm place a couple of days ago. Oh, so is the like, mother growing? I, exactly. I like kombucha, but that mother, it grows. The sight it's of so the mother gross. at the bottom is so gross. <laughs> 
gross. And if it crosses my lips in that texture, I, I live like instant gag reflex. <laughs> but I do like kombucha and I like the way it feels. But it also makes, because that thing is really creeping me out too, I have to tell you. And, and even just that it's called mother, it's the whole thing about it is not okay. <laughs> Made me think of the love breeding love, right? Because more little baby kombuchas come out of it, right? <laughs> oh my god, it's so great! <laughs> the bubbly, effervescent uh, <laughs> love that is breath. Yes. Okay, moving on. <laughs> oh, I love how you deal with the conversation of empathy versus sympathy. So please, will you? Tell us, will you give us some coaching about that? Sure, sure. The difference for me, one, I'm, I'm a huge fan of empathy, as many of us are. And I feel like we're at a time in this country, probably all over the world, certainly in this country, where there's a, a serious scarcity of empathy. And we're seeing it everywhere. We're seeing it in our relationships with people. We're seeing it on social media. We're seeing it in the political conversation everywhere. And empathy for me, very simply, is taking the time to put yourself in another person's shoes. So it's taking the time to imagine even for 30 seconds what the experience of another human being will be. And what empathy does is it creates connection. You know, if sympathy, and I'm not against sympathy, I, you know, sympathy is basically, sympathy tends to stop at pitying another person. It's like, I am sorry for you, where empathy is, I am you, I see you. I understand you on a different level, if that makes sense. And, and I can you have this, you have this great line. I don't want to please put a, go, 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 go. what you just said. I want you to say, but can I just read this line? Cause it was perfectly yeah, placed. Here. The next time you're inclined to sympathize, see if there's an opportunity to empathize. Absolutely. We all want to feel seen. I think that's what it comes down to. And empathy, empathy is saying to a person, I see you. You know, it's not there. It creates no separation. It's not saying I'm just sorry for you, poor you. It's like I am you. We're both human and not as a means of hijacking their experience. But as a, you know, I know, I think we all have the experience, you know, so my parents, I lost my parents at a young age, as we've discussed. I've met people who have lost their parents to murder, you know, and there's and who have told me and acknowledged it. And there's something that happens when someone is willing to acknowledge their pain to let you know that they see you in a very specific way that creates an incredible bond. And it doesn't even have to be that someone lost their parents to murder. Maybe it's someone who's lost their parents at a young age or something. There, there is an opportunity for us to connect in a way that we don't connect otherwise if we're just saying, poor you, poor you, poor you, if that's the energy with which we, we bring. And I'll share a story in the book really quickly, if that's okay. It was <laughs> that I think, yes, yes. <laughs> I think our, I'm, gitt I'm giddily nodding. Yes. <laughs> I think it articulates empathy really well. It was, I was sitting on a plane and I was in an aisle seat and across the aisle from me, there was a woman in uh, probably in her 60s and she was really, really sad. And she was dabbing with a Kleenex at her nose. She had obviously just been crying or was about to cry or both potentially. And I wanted to just reach out and hug her, but I, you know, I didn't for maybe obvious reasons because that would have been weird and creepy. But the, the flight attendant noticed her and walked right up to her, like beeline toward her. And this is as everyone's boarding and she just... She walked up to her and she grabbed the woman's hand and she said, honey, what's, what's wrong? And the woman looked at her and the flight attendant was probably 10 or 15 years her junior. And the woman looked at her and said, 
My dad died last week. And the woman began to cry. And the flight attendant squeezed her hand and bent over and looked her right in the eye, just inches from her eye. And she said, I've been there, honey. I've been there. And then she stood up and the woman leaned into her arms and the flight attendant held her arms around her and cried. And this whole thing lasted maybe 45 seconds to a minute because there was a lot of activity on the plane. But it was, for me, it was the most beautiful expression of empathy. What the flight attendant was saying to her is, I lost my dad too. I know your pain. And these two women who were complete strangers just seconds before were completely bound in friendship and connection because that flight attendant was willing to say more than I feel sorry for you and, and to show up in a way that was so beautiful and empathetic. And for me, it was everything, you know, it was everything. A phrase just popped into my head as you, and I, I love that story in your book and you tell it so beautifully. Um, my heart is like your heart. Your heart is like my heart. I have this place in my heart that's just like that place in your heart. Like it's this, like our hearts match right now because we both have this place where our dad's, the loss of our dad is sitting. It's yes, yes. The way that translates, one way that translates to the, the world we live in right now is how can we show empathy for the people on social media, let's say, who are posting things that we find vile and disgusting and offensive. And instead of retaliating and attacking, which just adds vitriol to vitriol and creates no possible healing, can we, can we step back for even 10 seconds and at least try to put ourselves in their shoes and try to imagine what their life experience may have been like to get to them to the point of posting this thing that upsets us so. And not as a means of condoning what they're saying. And we can still be very clear about what we're saying. But if we show up for, with empathy in our hearts, we're not going to show up with hatred at the same time. And we'll be able to hopefully with empathy and compassion articulate whatever it is we feel we need to say without dehumanizing our fellow human beings. Did you hear the story of how Sarah Silverman did that recently online yeah, on Twitter? She's oh my God. Amazing at I know. It. She I, shows up with so much empathy and so much compassion and she forges connections with people. So she, the story for the listeners who haven't heard this is, so Sarah Silverman was verbally attacked on Twitter by someone and she went and looked at his, looked him up and looked up his profile and saw that he had been in chronic pain for a long time. And so she replied with great love and compassion. And she said, you know what? I see that, that you're in a lot of pain. And I, now I understand just in giving a brief look at your online profile that that's what's probably behind you attacking me. And she ended up, um, you know, changing his life with love. And Patton Oswalt did the same thing on Twitter, same, a very similar thing. Like, oh, I see your pain and I'm not going to attack you back. I'm actually going to love you back. And I actually gave money to the thing that Patton Oswalt was saying, hey, you guys, he needs help. He needs to pay his hospital bills, let's all pay. And so this huge outpouring of love came to this man. And it was just, and you know, Sarah Silverman especially, and, and Patton Oswalt to some degree, you know, they can be, they can be sharp, right? Like they can, they can, they can, they can, send, they can send a mighty sword. That taught me exactly the lesson that you were just saying. So have you ever been attacked? I'm, say, I'm hoping no. 
that no one has ever come at you? People have said mean, I mean, people have written me mean things sometimes and, you know, not, not often, I should say, you know, but sometimes, and, and I'll, and I'll tell you, I don't, I, more often than not, I've responded sometimes and started, you know, started dialogues that actually went in a good direction. And sometimes I just ignore it. If it feels really just kind of hateful and whatever, I'll just block a person. I have no problem doing that too. I don't, I don't believe that we have to engage with everyone who invites us into a dialogue, especially if I feel like the person is committed to being right and committed to seeing me as something ugly. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, the question I ask myself often is what does love invite me to do in this moment? It's like the driving question that goes through my life and day. And sometimes honestly, what love invites me to do in the moment is just to disengage because I recognize all I have to offer a situation is my rage or, or like if I can't get out of my head, if I can't get out of the way enough where I, where I would be able to just offer love in return, it's like, don't engage. There is no need to add anything toxic to something that's already toxic. And if that's where you are right now, because I'm not somebody, I'm not operating in a state of love all the time. I would love to be because love feels the best but sometimes I'm just a giant asshole. You know what I mean? Sometimes I'm raging inside and sometimes all I want to do is scream and judge people. And it's like, like I know that, that the best choice is to disengage. And, and you, know, you get back on the love train when you're ready to get back on it. But ask yourself, like, what is love inviting me to do right now? What is love inviting me to do right now? That's so beautiful. I love that. I'm going to use that. Um, yeah, and that's like sometimes taking care of taking care of each other's heart you have to put on your own oxygen mask first take care of your take care of your own heart first before you can even be an offering to someone else absolutely and one of the chapters where you talk about that exactly um how we show up for other people is in the chapter called Rumi. so tell us a little bit about about that well that chapter is about a uh former roommate of mine and former friend who ended up dying from uh, an overdose on prescription drugs. And I write about my experience living with him at the time. He was dealing with a lot of chronic back pain and, um, and anxiety. And he started on medications for those. And I, at the time I was living with him, I remember why well, I, I was becoming aware that his prescription drugs were were really altering his personality and his experience of life. And it was in a way that wasn't, didn't feel good to me. And we were living in the same home. And at the same time, I didn't really want to, I didn't want to get involved, you know, I, and, and I, and I recognized why I didn't want to get involved. I didn't want to get involved because I grew up with a brother who was addicted to heroin and grew up, grew up immersed in addiction and was incredibly triggered by living with my friend who was obviously addicted to his prescription drugs. And so in the chapter, I'm ref- uh, really that chapter is a reflection on, on friendship and how are we choosing to show up and why are we choosing to show up the way we do? And can we be generous with ourselves when we're not able to show up in the way that we would like to, ideally? And also, can we nudge ourselves to show up in a more courageous way for yeah. our friends, you know, cause I think all of that's going on in friendships. Sometimes we're really present and we're, we're challenging our friends or nudging them. And sometimes we're staying silent for, 
for who knows how many reasons, because we feel they're not ready to receive it or because we're not ready to potentially threaten our friendship, you know, by speaking the truth, you know, all of these dynamics go on. And that, and I was in that chapter kind of wrestling with all of that through the lens of his addiction. And when I ultimately, I ultimately did speak up after I had moved out and wrote him a letter and it was very well received and he made some really positive changes in his life. And I, I moved out of state at that point, but was really excited to learn that he was seemingly moving beyond this addiction and it changed psychiatrists and, and was tapering off his drugs and then found out many months later through Facebook that he had died of an overdose, um, which was awful, obviously. Especially since your brother did too. I mean, it's just a, a double whammy, even if the, there's years between them. I love one of your lines in this, in that chapter is, be aware of one another, be conscious of one another, do not wait blindly through the day as you pass your brothers and sisters on the street. And that was from a Facebook post. It's not yeah. what you wrote. I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to misrepresent that. I think I just said that you wrote it, but, but you were mentioning this Facebook post in response to his death, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And just seeing one another, you know, just holding space for one another. Sometimes the, the healing that can come, so often we don't know what to say when people are going through their traumas or their grief or their depression or their anxiety or whatever it is they're going through, sometimes we don't show up for people the way we, we would want to because we have no clue what to say. Yeah. And, and what I'm learning and have learned is that, that we don't have to say anything. Right. Like sometimes just being there, just offering love, just offering presence, just offering an ear is enough to help somebody, you know, help somebody move on. Somebody taught me a, <clears throat> a few years ago to ask, what do you need? When people die, it's, we always, I think we all kind of, most of us freeze up in a way, you know, yeah. and especially if the circumstances are uncomfortable like that, or it's suicide or whatever, I seem to be having a string of suicides in my life, not, you know, like a couple degrees of separation, but still affect, you yeah. know, it's just an intense time right now, I think for a lot of people. And what do you need right now? What can I, what can I do for you? But what do you need seems to trigger better responses I've found because yeah, they can yeah. go, oh, wait, what do I need? But I love that. I just want to pluck out of what you just said. I love those two words, generous and courageous. So being generous with yourself to not judge how you're actually handling it and then being courageous to maybe tread into the waters that you might not necessarily want to tread into. I, I'm going to hang on to those two words. Absolutely. And I, I'm finding more in my life that, that the more I can do both those things with my life, it's like I, I'm constantly nudging myself, you know, like keep going, keep going, open more, stretch yourself more, you know, and also trying to be really generous and gentle with myself. It's like, you're only human. This is okay. And you can do both things. Like we're, we're incredibly expansive creatures. The capacity, our, uh, the energetic capacity, what we have available to us, what we can hold within, uh, within ourselves is big. You know what I mean? We That's can be beautiful. gentle and courageous. We, we, we are everything. Right. And the more I learn that and the more I make space for all of that and the more I love myself through all of it, I feel like the more at peace I become. Mm, that's so beautiful. Um, speaking of that, being generous with yourself and, and accepting yourself, I would love for you to read a piece of your book, which is 
where you um, retell in a just the most exquisite way a parable. And this is from the chapter... Cracked Pot. Thank you so much. a <laughs> <laughs> Cracked Pot. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I was blanking out. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I would love to read it. Sure. Okay, great. Thank you. Yeah, so it's from a chapter. It's my favorite parable. I'm a big fan of parables. Um, oh, maybe I write that in here, This what I'm about to say. So hold on, I won't even say it. I'll just read it. Okay. <laughs> okay. One of my favorite parables, which I've seen credited as an Indian and a Chinese folktale, tells the story of a cracked pot. I don't know where it originated, and I haven't been to India or mainland China, so I'm going to set it in the mountains of Bali, one of my favorite places on the planet. As my version of the story goes, a bold Balinese woman named Nayaman lived alone in a wooden cabin high up in the mountain near Ubud. Each morning, she trudged more than two miles to the closest stream to gather water for drinking, cooking, and bathing. She carried with her two large clay pots, which she had crafted specifically for the purpose of carrying water. She'd painted one pot purple and the other pink, but only because she'd run out of her favorite black and silver paints. Every morning, she hung the pots on a long bamboo pole, one pot at each end of the pole, then rested the pole across her neck and shoulders in order to carry the clay pots back and forth between her cabin and the stream. The journey mostly sucked, especially the return. Who wants to lug two giant pots full of water more than two miles up a mountainside? Not Nyman, but she needed the water. At least she adored her pots. They loved her too. Thank you, dear pots, for the gift of water each day, she said, each time she returned home from the stream before collapsing onto her bed, sweaty and exhausted. It is a great honor to serve you, dear Nyman, the pots replied, because in parables such as this, clay pots don't just talk, but do so with refined formality. One day, upon returning home with her pots, Nyman was surprised to see the purple pot only half full of water. What the f... Before she had a chance to finish her thought, which may or may not have been profane, she noticed a crack on the side of her pot where the water must have escaped. Hmm, she thought. Interesting. The purple pot sensed its crack and knew it had arrived home only half full. Though it felt disappointed by this, it didn't panic, hopeful it would re retain all its water the next time. The following day, however, the purple pot returned half full once again. The day after that, too. Then the performance anxiety really set in. In fact, for more than a year, Nyman filled the pots, as she always did at the stream's edge, and the purple pot returned with only half its water, causing it great distress. To make matters worse, the pink pot, which always returned home full, had grown a little, well, full of itself. When Nyman went to sleep, the pink pot teased the purple pot. Pull up your pants, the pink pot whispered. I can see your crack. The pink pot laughed, but the purple pot sulked even more. One morning, as warm sunshine blessed the mountain, Nyman returned home with her pots and thanked them as usual. Thank you, dear pots, for the gift of water each day. It is a great honor to serve you, dear Nyman, the pink pot replied. The purple pot, however, burst into tears. I'm so sorry, dear Nyman. I failed you over and over again. I am a worthless pot. Failed me? Worthless? Nyman didn't understand. Did you take acting classes when I wasn't looking? Because you sure have gotten dramatic. Nyman laughed wildly at her tired joke while massaging her tired feet. The purple pot just frowned, because obviously pots that talk and cry can also frown. I am cracked and no longer worthy of your care. For more than a year, I have not been able to provide you with a full load of water. 
Every morning, the moment we leave the stream, I feel the water begin to seep out through the crack in my side, and I know I will disappoint you again. Please craft yourself a new pot, one that will not fail you so. Nyman held the pot in her hands and smiled. My dear purple pot, you need to chill, for real. You haven't disappointed me at all. But I am no good, the pot insisted. I am a cracked pot. You and me both, honey, Nyman replied. I need to show you something, she said. She carried the purple pot outside and walked with it along the path to the stream. Do you see all the wildflowers along your side of the path, she asked, all these Balinese beauties? The purple pot took in the yellow and rose-tinted plumeria, the violet bluebells, and the fiery red shora flowers that colored the side of the path. It even spotted some wild jasmine shrubs, their simple white flowers salted among all the color. The pot's journey to and from the stream had been clouded with so much guilt and shame that it had never noticed the flowers until this moment. I see them, the pot replied. Do you see any flowers on the other side of the path, Nyman asked, the side under which the pink pot travels each day? The purple pot looked to the pink pot, pink pot side of the path but saw no flowers, just bare mountainside. I don't understand, the pot said. Why are there flowers only on my side of the path? Nyman chuckled, chuckled. Because, drama queen, the morning after I noticed your crack, I planted seeds along your side of the path. Every day, as we return home from the stream, you water them. What used to be empty ground now bursts with color because of you. At least now, when I make the backbreaking journey to and from the stream each day, I get to take in the beauty and scent of all these flowers, all because of your crack. Got it? The purple pot listened to Nyman in disbelief. It stared out at the blanket of flowers it had played a part in creating, and it wept, like no pot, purple or pink or black or silver, had ever wept before. It had only ever seen its crack as a flaw, but now understood that it was also a gift. Thank you, dear Nyman, it said. It is my great honor to serve you. Oh, oh my God. Okay. <laughs> Can I just tell you, so Scott is seeing that I'm crying. And the reason I'm crying is that I just, I'm so happy I had you read that because first of all, it's such a gift, gift to the listeners. But secondly, I got something different this time, which was like, what a beautiful thing. Like it's what a beautiful thing for relationships. Like that you, you know how often the thing that we're attracted to yeah. in somebody at the beginning is the thing that annoys us the most yes. later. Right. And we yes. see, Oh, that's a crack. That's not actually not. And you know, that's not, that's not a piece of gold. That's a crack in the pot, whatever. Yes. And it's like in relationship, if we can just like turn that crack into a gift and, and water, water the garden with it, like for Absolutely. each other, like, Oh my Absolutely. God. That's beautiful. I love that you shared that. Yeah. Oh my God. Thank you so much. We're so hell-bent on beating ourselves up, you know, we are so, we're so adept at self-abuse, we're so adept at looking at our idiosyncrasies, the things that make us who we are as flaws, you know, as things to hide, as reasons that we are not enough, instead of like broadening our perspective, you know, and considering how those things are actually adding benefits to our lives, how they're actually inviting relationships and possibilities that may not have been there otherwise, you know? Oh, it's so beautiful. Thanks for asking me to read that. Oh my God, it was so beautiful. And you, you, you had no preparation for that and you didn't make a single mistake. That was incredible. <laughs> I don't 
think that I would be as perfectly reading of my own book, frankly. I'm going to tell you that right now. <laughs> well, I read the I had to read I read the audiobook for Big Love too. I had to audition for my own book though. Oh my God. <laughs> I was telling I was telling Jen, I was bitching about this the other day that I didn't get to read my book, but um but you know, a very amazing professional person did. So that's great. <laughs> I haven't I haven't had the balls to listen to it yet though. <laughs> I can't listen to mine either, and it's me. I tried. I lasted thirty seconds, and I'm like, nope, not going to do that. Right, and Jen was saying that is taking care of your heart to not listen to it. Exactly, right? exactly. As you would say, the same exactly thing. Also, oh my God, I just have to tell you that I was laughing and I was stifling my laughs while you were reading because there's so many funny lines in there. But I have to tell you that I literally laughed out loud in the chapter um, flop. Right. Um, uh, uh, wait, was it, was it flop or no, it was, time, it was just love. No, it was, was just, just love. love. Right. Well, oh, okay. Yeah, oh, yeah, I'm yeah. sorry. Okay. Let me just tell you that there are so many things that made me laugh out loud. Like literally I was writing the pages that were making me laugh. And then the list was so long. I was like, okay. So it's like almost every page makes me laugh out loud, but the Richmond event, um, <laughs> So, so Scott had that after the Richmond event. The oh, the, now happened. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> Do you want to know what's funny? The line I'm going to tell you and the line that you're, you're about to say, or is that I hadn't, I hadn't even thought of that. And I was reading that chapter to my partner and he's like, well, what about when, so I go to this Richmond event and I took, I, for the book before Big Love was called Just Love. And it, it's a coffee table art book of my quotes paired with these pictures. And I did a Kickstarter campaign to, to fund that book and it got funded. And so I decided to throw myself this book tour and I'm all excited because I had lots of fans on fans, followers, whatever people on Facebook at the time. And, and I'm like, well, people are definitely going to show up for my events, you know? And so you go and it would be like, some of the events were like one person, three people. And, and I say after Richmond, after it was an event with like two people or whatever it was, I, uh, so I, I, I rented a car for the event and I loaded the car up with the books and I bought these magnets. This is what you're referring to, right? And I bought these big magnets that said just love and they, they're like the book cover and the book covers this beautiful orange. And so I have these big orange magnets on the side of the car that say just love and I'm driving and after the Richmond event, I drive and I stop and I see that one of the magnets fell off and, and in the book I say, and my partner's like, you got to talk about how one of the magnets flew off your car after the event. And I'm like, the magnet was too embarrassed. <laughs> it, was too, it, was too, it, couldn't, it couldn't make it. Wait, I have to read it because you wrote it so it. incredibly beautifully. After that Richmond event, one of my car magnets, apparently unable to handle the humiliation of another low turnout <laughs> dislodged itself from the passenger side door and flew to freedom somewhere along highway 95 who could blame it you're great thank you you're making my book sound even funnier to me <laughs> There's a really beautiful, poignant thing also on that book tour, which is in the same book tour where you met that man and you had that amazing exchange, right? And where you were like, okay, all of this that felt like failure or not enough or not good enough. Tell us about that, that beautiful. Well, yeah, I was in, uh, so I'm from Michigan and the, the final stop on the tour was going to be in Ann Arbor, which is a town in Michigan where I went to college. And it's at this really great bookstore called Nicholas Books. And I was, 
and I had never been to the bookstore prior to this event. So my partner Gordon and I went the night before to kind of just check it out. And we're in the store and it's a really big independent bookstore, but it's kind of a strange time of day. And there are no other customers in the store except one man. And he's at the back of the store and we're walking through the store and I'm having Gordon take pictures of me next to my book. Cause it's my first time seeing it in a store and, and we're doing all this thing. And then I go to the back of the store and there's one man sitting there on a sofa and the book he is reading is my book of every book that could have been in that store. He's holding my book and flipping through it. And I'm like, this is crazy. This is nuts. And I end up having a, a long, you know, a nice conversation with him. And it turns out this was a man who'd, who'd at the time been, been homeless. And I, I won't go into like, I had a long conversation with him and a, a really sweet connection about, and, and one of the things that I came away with from that experience is we're, 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 it's so easy, especially if you're artistic, if you're an artist in any way and putting your art out there into the world, it's so easy to feel like you're not connecting with enough people or, or whatever it is you're feeling, all of the insecurities we feel when we're trying to share something with the world. And seeing this man who is at a, a hard time in his life really connecting with my book, as he told me afterwards, was like, I just felt like it was a gift from life. Like, you don't have any clue how your words are reaching people, who your words are reaching. And it's not your responsibility to know that. Right. Your responsibility is just to trust in your creation and trust that your creation will be received how and where and by whom it will be received. And, and that's, you know, your job is just to, to be as open as you're able to be to allow that creation to come through you as truthfully as it can. What you're <clears throat> under-reporting here is what a huge difference your book made in his life. Like, he, it's very clear, and I'm glad you, you beautifully documented in this chapter of how you made a huge difference in his life with what, what he happened to flip through. And then you go, oh, okay, so the magnet falling off and every single thing that felt like it was bad and wrong on this tour was not, it all led up to this one perfect moment, right? Yeah, like, absolutely. I mean, or that's what I do. I kind of clutch those things. I got an amazing testimonial last week that I can't share because for, for various reasons I can't share. So I know about this beautiful testimonial and only I will know about this beautiful <laughs> testimonial. And, but I got it at, you know, I'm having, I'm doing construction at my house. And so I haven't been able to do as much for my book, which, which just came out in January. So I'm feeling just this horrible, lots of shame around that bad and wrong. And this, you know, sales ranking on Amazon is spiraling and, you know, all hell is breaking loose. <laughs> and I'm, 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 I'm so bad. I see you. I see you. I... <laughs> <laughs> and so, and then I got that testimonial and I was like, and it was in the middle of a day, literally in the middle of a day where I was like feeling so bad and wrong. And then this testimonial came and it's like, it's all perfect. You will have time again, as soon as this is over to refocus and kick ass again. But anyway, your, your book reminded me of that lesson. And I'm so glad I got that lesson nailed into my heart by you. Thank you. <laughs> no, absolutely. And thank you. And even more so like uh, I, that moment was a really beautiful moment on the book tour, but it was one of many. And the thing that happens for us, if we get, if I've noted, if we get so clouded by how many people and how many copies, 
we lose sight of these, this beautiful testimony, you know, the one person who, who met me in Richmond and the connection that we had that was so profound and beautiful and could never have happened in a larger group. It's like, you know, those things matter too. And we lose touch with those things. I think when we get lost into the demands of our ego for more, more, more numbers, more, you know what I'm saying? Yes. Yes. Whose idea of success is that? Likely not the divine, um, Absolutely. Not from the divine, or as you call it, the source, which I love that word as well. One of the one of the final chapters um, you talk about. Well, you talk about forgiveness, I think, a little bit throughout. But um, like freedom is the name of this yeah. chapter, right? Yeah. And um, uh, you 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 represents us to the story of how the Amish who had a shooting in their um, Pennsylvania community. How many people were killed? It was at a school, wasn't it? Yeah, I think five were ki- five young girls were killed and five others shot and you know severely injured. And I had heard this story, but I hadn't heard it as in depth as you shared with us. So thank you for that. Thank you for representing us to that. But the bottom line is, tell us what they did and how forgiveness, how they are such an emblem for all of us of the of forgiveness. Yeah, I mean, they, I mean, basically what they did is they forgave the man who killed their kids in the community. They, they started a fund. I mean, they, they, they displayed by example what it means to forgive. You know, I, I feel like it's very easy to talk about this and that and talk about love and talk about forgiveness. But then when you're faced with a situation that an entire world would deem unforgivable, how are you going to show up in the face of that? And how they showed up was by um, starting a fund for the fa- the kid, the family of the, the man who killed their parents, who also died, ended up killing himself. Um, they showed up at the few, at or they showed up at her house to help her grieve as well. The woman who was married to this man. I mean, they, they were the most beautiful example of forgiveness, you know, and, and how I've, I mean, the story is the, the chapter is mostly about my journey to forgiveness with the man who killed my parents and how that's been for me, one of the most freeing profound experiences I've had in my life. And as a, you know, for many years when I would think about this man, it was just through, a lens of rage, just hating him and wanting him to die and imagining horrible deaths for him, you know? And it wasn't until I got into my twenties and started to recognize that when I would think about him, all of this hatred that would boil up was actually taking an emotional and physical toll on me. You know, I started to pay attention to how my body felt and it, 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 it was not good. You know what I mean? And, and that's what hatred does. I mean, we, we internalize it in our body and it, it destroys us and it destroys us emotionally. And so I knew that I needed to come, I needed to make a different choice. And I, I felt like the answer for me was going to be forgiveness, even though I had no idea how I was going to find my way to forgiveness of this man. So what I started with was just empathy. And we talked about empathy earlier. And I started by putting, imagining what his life experience might have been like. And though I didn't know the details of his life, what I felt like I could say with certainty is this was a man who felt lost and angry and confused and um, traumatized in ways by life. Because nobody who doesn't feel all those things would make the choice that he made. 
you know, and I felt like I couldn't relate. The truth is, I told myself I couldn't relate to making that violent choice, but in my head, I've imagined him getting murdered countless times. Mm -hmm. So I could even imagine that. I wouldn't, I never acted on that and can't imagine myself acting on it, but my mind can conjure up some very violent, ugly thoughts and had with him. So even that I could relate to. I could relate to feeling lost. I could relate to feeling unloved. I could relate to feeling confused. I could relate to feeling angry. I could relate to all of these things. And once I started to connect to him, that way, suddenly he became another human being and then he became a brother. Mm. You know, it's yeah, when we separate ourselves and somehow tell ourselves that we are not, that they are less than, that he is less than because of what he did. If I view him just through the lens of his action, I'm doing a disservice to both of us. But when I allowed myself to connect to him as another human being, I started to notice that when I would think about him, it was with love in my heart. And then eventually... I realized that when I would think about him, I had forgiven him. I was no longer holding on to hatred. I was no longer tethered to the blame and that toxic, toxic hatred. It was something totally different. It was forgiveness and it was totally freeing. Wow. And that's how I feel about him. And, and I believe that forgiveness is a mandate of love. So I don't move through, and this provokes people in my workshops. I give a lot of workshops and and this is one of the things that provokes people more than any. And I, and I don't tell people, look, you live your life how you need to live your life. Love tells me to forgive. I don't view anything as unforgivable. That's my choice. And that has served me well in my life. You know, but, but do what you need to do. <laughs> like you do you, boo. You know what I mean? It, you know, but this for me was one of the greatest gifts of my life, seeing that I could, I could take something that most people saw as unforgivable and still find my way to forgiveness. And I believe that you can only do that if you believe in forgiveness. That's beautiful. So you're back at living in Detroit, which is where this happened, where you grew up. Do you feel more lightness now living in Detroit, now that you're back in Detroit? I'm really happy to be back here. I moved back home. I live in about 30 minutes north of Detroit. And it feels great to be back here, in, in great part because I, my siblings are amazing and I have a close family and I get to see them a lot. But it's such a it's such a testament to your healing too that you could come back, I think. Yes, and it's been a long time. I mean, it's been over thirty years since my parents were killed. Not that not that I still don't grieve them in moments. You know what I mean? I don't think there's any, any sort of neat buttoned up closure to this kind of grief, to losing people you love. I think you you carry it with you and you create your life around it however you're able. Yeah. And you move on because the sun keeps rising. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? And all we can do is keep moving forward in our lives. And it's, and I also don't want to suggest that I'm always, I'm grieving them daily at all. Right. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, it comes in. My mom's birthday was yesterday, actually. Oh, happy I'm birthday, mom. Years old. Wow. Wow. That is wild. You know? So she was living large with me in my heart yesterday in joyful ways and in sad ways. Living large with me in my heart. I love that. And that is a perfect line to close on cool. that you're inspiring us to live large in our own hearts, out of our own hearts. And thank you for, thank you for this book. Thank you for this conversation. Thank you for your immense con contributions to all of our hearts and for being out there in the world a superhero of love with your cape flapping in the wind. <laughs> I'm really grateful for you having me on. Thank you. Thank so you. Much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank this you. podcast and the love that you're just pouring out into the world. It's beautiful. Oh, it's so sweet. 
Okay, so Scott, tell <laughs> us. <laughs> okay, the reason, the reason we're laughing so hilariously I forgot to ask Scott before where you could find him. So we came, came back on for this particular purpose because this is really important. Scott, yes. tell us where everybody can find you. Yes. Well, you can find me on, on Facebook and Instagram, certainly. And then at scottstabile.com is my website. And with all my events, and I do a lot of workshops, and I have uh, um, LA and the Bay Area coming up. So check that out. And then San Diego as well. Lots of workshops coming up in Chicago area. So come find me and come meet me in person and we'll, uh, we'll just get our love on. Wait, that sounded wrong, but you know what I mean? Not in that way. No listener, he's not seducing you. Yeah, no, 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 he's just no. telling you to come have your heart bounce up against his heart. No, that's not what he's saying either. Okay. All right. Love ourselves in each other's presence. Oh wait, no, that was not what I said. Oh my God, it's deteriorating. Just come out and... and, and. I'm just, you get the idea, listener. Thank you super